the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr. This is definitely the best in the world with Richard Parr. I got quite confused on my other show, Sportachino, the breakfast show, broadcast every weekday morning on Facebook Live and now YouTube from 8 a.m. British Standard Time, where I accidentally called that show the best in the world with Richard Parr. But this isn't Sportachino. This is the best in the world because we dissect what makes Olympic champions, world champions, world number ones and former world record holders the best at what they do. On this week's show, we learn from the two-time Olympic gold medalist Heather Stanning. She's also a two-time world champion and she discusses her daily routine, nutrition and the mental preparation needed ahead of a major event. She also talks about her relationship with her rowing partner Helen Glover and the role the army has played in her success because Heather is a major in the Royal Artillery. We talk about that and a lot, lot more on today's podcast. You do not want to miss it. Well, today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. Definitely worth doing. It's a product I personally use. And guess what? The kind people at Audible are offering you the chance to test out their service. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's audibletrial.com forward slash best. And there you will get a 30-day free trial of their product. And that includes one free download. And that can be any audio book you like and they've got lots of different titles including sports so i recommend you check it out that code again is audibletrial.com forward slash best well let's get to it let's go and learn from the very best let's go and learn from heather stanning the best in the world podcast with richard parr Heather Stanning, two-time Olympic gold medalist in rowing. Welcome to the best in the world. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll begin with what have you been up to since you won that gold medal back in Rio? Oh, thank you, Richard. Well, it's nice to be with you. Um, yeah, what have I done since coming back from Rio? It's been just kind of a whirlwind of busyness, but nothing in particular, to be honest. I've um, been all over the country seeing friends and family um, and then kind of doing the media rounds, whether it's kind of going on the breakfast show, doing questions of sport, um, and also kind of going to schools, visiting um, schools and kind of showing people um, my medals. And um, and then obviously Helen's wedding, that was a, that was a nice kind of break from mm. the, the craziness of everything else. Um, so yeah, kind of a little bit of everything. Um, and then also trying to get back into to work a little bit with the army, but, but not full time yet. So yeah. Um, yeah, kind of been fairly busy. <laughs> and now on the best in the world with Richard Parr. It really has been. Well, exactly. And that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to go into, into so many of those different things. Is it, do you enjoy this time or, or does it become frustrating? Because surely when you're building up to the Olympics, you get yourself into a certain routine and everything like that. When you don't have that kind of schedule and that routine, does it become frustrating for someone like you? 
Um, it, it's just really different. I think initially we, we love the fact that you're not in a routine and you can just you can do different stuff and um, you can go and visit people and, and it's not kind of revolving around myself and I, I can I can go and visit people rather than expecting them to come see me and that, that's really nice. Suddenly you've got freedom to do lots of stuff, but after a few weeks, you suddenly you're craving routine again. You're like, oh goodness, like what? How many nights have I had out of my bed this week? Sort of thing. You kind of that that never happens normally. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's kind of a fine balancing line of uh, yeah. Some of it's quite fun, and then after a while, I, I crave routine again. But all the things I'm doing are all really fun. Um, so it's yeah, it's a little bit of both, um, but not for not frustrating in a way. It's um, it's just different, uh, making the most of it because it's it's not forever and it won't won't carry on forever. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, a bit like a holiday. You, you enjoy it, but ultimately, <laughs> you, sometimes you want to go home. I think we're, we're creature, creatures of habit at heart, really. Well, exactly. I think everyone loves routine and they love habit. And uh, you, you can accept change for a while. And sometimes you're like, I just want to go back to what I was doing. <laughs> mm. So in the weeks leading up to Rio, why don't you discuss what was your, what was your daily routine for, for a typical training day? What time would you be getting up? What would you be eating? what type of training you'd be doing when you break for lunch maybe just give us a, an idea of, of what your day was looking yeah so like a I mean a typical day for a rower um we kind of get up it's not not too early when, when you're training full-time with the national squad you're not having to go to work so you kind of it's not the the crack of dawn that some people think we have to do it's kind of a sensible time to get up about seven kind of go to the training center we all meet at seven thirty. I'm on the water by eight um, by then I've already had one one breakfast and um, after the first session we have a second breakfast um, and then kind of probably back back on the water again for another hour or so um, before having lunch and then in the afternoon tends to be when we do so the mornings we do kind of our endurance work um, whether yeah, it's on the water on the ergos in the gym or um, or something else and then in the afternoon tends to be when we do our kind of our strength training so we do kind of our strength and conditioning in the afternoons before kind of heading home, having a snack, having a bit of a downtime to recover and then having dinner and going to bed. So um, it's not the most exciting day, but the days fly by when you're when you're training hard and um, when you're doing three to six hours of actual physical training a day, you get home, you're absolutely shattered and all you do is you eat and go to bed <laughs> mm. and it all starts again the next day. So, I mean, that's pretty much the routine I've had for the last couple of years. Um but kind of in the in the build up to a major championships and like the Olympics, you do you taper off towards it. So certainly in the like the few weeks leading into Rio, the, the mileage we were doing was getting less and we were focusing more on speed work and um there was a lot more time in between sessions. Um so we weren't doing nearly the same amount of mileage we'd done in the winter and certainly when it came to weight training, we weren't lifting such heavier weights. It was everything was all about the fine tuning. Um so yeah, there's a little bit more time, but in that time you need to be making sure you're resting and recovering. So you get more time to do things, but you don't want to do anything because you've, you're looking after yourself so well. Um, so yeah, we kind of closed ourselves off from the rest of the world a little bit in the in the build up to the to the games. Does I'm, I'm just listening to that. I'm I'm just thinking about when you're when you're leading up to that and you you have that routine. You know, does that help with kind of any nerves or tensions or thoughts or because obviously you know it's what you've worked your whole four years for your whole life for is to go to the Olympics and be successful. Are you able to just shut off the actual race in the back of your mind and just concentrate on the work or does it help thinking about it? Does it make you work 
a little bit harder. How does it work with the mental aspect when you're leading up to a, a big event such as an Olympics or a World Championships? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, ha- having routine and the discipline routine r- really helps um, because you, you're doing things you've always done, so you don't get distracted by maybe some of the external factors. Um, and also, f- for me, sticking sticking to what we do and um, being very kind of practical and logical in the way where I approach training and approach racing means that I, I use like factual things around me to stay focused and that helps me kind of control means like nervousness and things because um, nerves are a good thing but um, it's understanding why you're nervous and it's using um, maybe the anxieties you might have as a positive thing and be okay I'm anxious and nervous because I'm worried about the outcome okay but the outcome doesn't have to be bad I've got control over the, the outcome and uh, I know that I'm going fast. I know I'm pulling good scores. I know I'm, I'm stronger than I was last year, and we, we were winning last year. So there's no reason why I can't now win this year. Um, and those are those are kind of the little things I use to help me kind of stay focused towards an event, and also um, yeah, kind of using the routine and discipline we do in training all the time, and then applying that into into racing. Mm. And you, you mentioned food and breakfast and dinner and everything like that. What would be your, your typical breakfast? And are you a person who can literally eat anything because you're burning <laughs> so many calories or are you still really focused on the diet? Um, yeah, so if you'd asked me this question about 18 months ago, I would have been, yeah, I can eat most things, but I've got to be a little bit careful. However, I think as I've got older, my body's adapted slightly and um certainly in this last season i found that i'm i'm needing to eat more um to to manage the training and this this last winter no matter how much i ate i kept losing weight um and so i kind of had to reassess what i was eating in my diet and um and i just needed more volume of things so certainly when i first joined the rowing team um i remember sitting down with a nutritionist and she was saying okay we need to cut out the the amount of biscuits and snacks you have in the afternoons and maybe a couple of the puddings a week sort of thing. Whereas this year she's been like, right, everything I told you to stop <laughs> doing four years ago, put them back in your diet. <laughs> mm. So, uh, I mean, breakfast is, it is all healthy and it's getting, I eat an awful lot of calories, probably near five to five and a half thousand calories is what oh, I was wow. aiming to eat this winter, which is a huge amount. Whereas previously I'd probably be anywhere between three and a half to four thousand. Um, but it's getting the right sort of calories. You can, you can sit and eat chocolate and ice cream, but mm. it's not the right sort of calories <laughs> yeah. to, to help you with training. So it's having yeah, the um, the protein and the carbohydrates and the right kind of vegetables and um, the right foods that kind of help you um, your your body adapt to the training. So if you're getting muscle soreness, it's, e- it's eating foods that help you with muscle soreness rather than um, yeah, just stuffing your face with the chocolate at the end of the day. Um, obviously, chocolate helps a little bit. It makes you feel good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is, that, is that your food vice? Is that the one thing you, you kind of treat yourself to knowing um, oh, perhaps you shouldn't? Um, a little bit. I think it's more because uh, Helen loves chocolate so much and we share rooms a lot when we go away. So she's always got a chocolate stash. So then I've suddenly become a bit more of a chocolate fiend as well. Um, but ice cream's a bit of my, my go-to, I think. So... Um, let, let, let's talk about you mentioned Helen there let, let's talk yeah. about your your relationship how, how did you um to first meet yes yeah, so, and we first met um kind of the end of 2009 um we were both training with Paul Stannard in Bath but both also had jobs to do away from training so I was in the army by then Helen was um 
teaching. So she was in the group of athletes that Paul took on after I left university because I trained with him at university and then I'd left and gone and joined the army. Um, he took on a new group of athletes and Helen was in that group. Um, so when I went back to training with him, um, she was there and I kind of I, I kind of met her briefly and she was just another of his athletes that I kind of saw at weekends when I was training. But then, um, yeah, kind of the winter of 2009, 2010, we got to know each other a bit better and actually ended up kind of doing some crew boat work together. So whether it was in the double or the pair, um, and we ended up doing kind of a mini training camp. It was just the two of us because everyone else in the group had gone away, um, gone abroad that, that January. And we couldn't because of our jobs. So um, it was just the two of us training in Bath. So we did quite a lot of stuff together then. And we got to know each other and got on well. And um, I think then Paul saw maybe there's an opportunity to put us in a boat together to trial for the squad that April. And it all kind of built from there. Um, and we've kind of stayed in a boat ever since pretty much. Mm. And and obviously the relationship has had to be so close throughout the years, and that, that's part of what makes you so successful. What would you say are the the strongest attributes you bring to the team, and the strongest ones that Helen brings? Um, yeah, we're we're kind of polar opposites a little bit sometimes um, in training. She is incredibly competitive and driven, and it's not to say I'm not competitive, but in comparison to her. I look like I, I don't care, but I do. Um, but she is yeah, extremely driven and has a real drive to be the best she can be. And, and that's really good for me because sometimes I am a bit laid back. Um, but on the flip side, being laid back and being a bit kind of calmer about things is also a good thing. So you don't get into this um, kind of whirlwind of we have to be better at this today sort of thing. And um, so she has a real sense of urgency in training. And sometimes I have a bit more of a stand back and look from the outside um take on what we're doing um so i think yeah we kind of complement each other really nicely um and certainly i'm a bit more process driven um, where she's very outcome driven so for her it's about getting the results and for me it's about how do you get the results and over the last few years we've, we've definitely we're kind of a bit of both now both of us um and that's been really healthy because obviously the way you get results is important but then getting the results at the end of the day is all that really matters um mm. so yeah we've kind of we're a nice complement of each other um but that's been really well um kind of uh i think with the use of robin as well our coach the three of us uh, he he's amazing and he's a, a real calming influence on us both as well um and he kind of between the three of us it's, it's not just me and helen all the time and um, robin's just as important a part of the crew um so it's um, yeah, it's quite cool. It's a really unique situation to be in to work with such a, a s small group of people and to work so well with them for so long. Yeah, it's, it's great the way you were talking about how you're a bit more laid back, but she's a, a bit more kind of f not focused but more driven, and, yeah. and you're, you're more processed. She's more outcome. Bizarrely, I, I think I'm I'm all four of those attributes, and <laughs> that's, that's probably why I'm not the best in the world, and, and that's why you're a great team. Now, <laughs> you mentioned your coach as well. Uh, one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is goal setting. And one of the things yeah. a lot of people talk about, the, the top Olympic athletes we've had on here, talk about setting mini goals. Now, firstly, is that something you do? And secondly, when when you talk about setting goals, and, and obviously you've got Helen going, wanting those outcomes, Mm. What, what type of intervals are you talking? Are you talking, all right, we've got to do this by the end of the week? Or are you saying this is our goal for the next six months, year? Or is it 
we're just working towards Olympic gold medal or, or things like that. How, how do you split that all up? Yeah, you, you definitely have to, to break seasons down. And ultimately, when you start um, an Olympic campaign, um, the, the end goal is the Olympics because that's, that's the end of it. Um, so whatever your goal may be at that, um, of course, everyone would love to say our, our goal is to be an Olympic gold medalist. But the reality is some people need to just be a bit more realistic. And you know what? Some people's goal is just to compete at the Olympics. And that's an amazing thing to do in itself. But I think over time, especially here in GB, uh, within Team GB, it's become if you don't win a medal, it's not good enough. And that's not the case at all, because there's some amazing athletes and just getting selected for the team is an absolutely phenomenal thing to do. But um, I think because as a team, we're doing so well now, people are kind of disappointed if you're not coming home with a medal, um, which is mm. kind of, um, yeah, we're kind of making it hard for ourselves by being so successful. Um but certainly for for us um, within that Olympic campaign, we yeah our our goal has been yeah we want to go certainly for Rio to go defend the title and gold gold was the goal. Um, but breaking that down, um, you would look at each year as a stepping stone, and the World Championships each season were very important. Um, for us, we hadn't been world champions before um, 2012, so that was something to achieve between 2012 and 2014. Helen did that in the first year with Polly in 2013. And then when I came back, it was a real goal for the two of us to to become world champions together. Um, we also had things like we wanted to set the world best time, which we also managed to achieve in 2014. But then within each season, we, yeah, we got the world championships at the end, but we've also got World Cup regattas. So we each use each of those races as, a again, a stepping stone towards the championships. Um, and yeah, we will set ourselves targets, whether it's, a target to the way we're racing a race or a target to what the outcome is i think over over the years and it it i, I don't mean to sound arrogant but like we'd go into race is knowing we we wanted to win and we should win because we knew we were capable of it and so then it was for us it was about learning how's the best way to to race and how can we get the most out of each race um because for us the ultimate goal was the olympics and we needed to use the seasons in between to learn a lot more about us way we race and also learn about our competitors and how to put our competitors under pressure at different parts of the race so um i think we were lucky because we stayed together for a long time as a combination and not many people get that opportunity to to play around with the way they race and often people are only together as a crew for a year so they have to that year it's all about getting things right for that year and they can't have the long-term um progression that we've been able to have Mm. Well, I, I think it's far from arrogant. I, I actually love the the confidence, and I think that's one of the things from what I've learned from speaking to thirty plus Olympic and world champions. Mm. Is, it's that confidence which does help. The only thing I was going to ask, though, is is when can you notice danger signs of being overconfident to the point where you? you you don't perform your best because you, you're unprepared. You're not ready. You're, but you think yeah. you're the best. Like, is is there a danger of overconfidence? There, there is, but I think we're very good at not letting ourselves, and we're really aware of that. I think Helen's very good at that. She has this kind of healthy paranoia of I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough until we go out and we we've started a race. We've done the heat of a um, of a race or a regatta weekend, and then it's like, okay, no. I know that we, what we've done in training is right and we've just had one race at the weekend and it's, we're on the right path. But yeah, I think, she, yeah, she's really good at 
there's this healthy paranoia of not being good enough until you've actually gone and proved it to yourselves. Um, and we're, our confidence isn't blind confidence. We use facts to give us confidence. And we, we look at the times and we look at the things we've done and we look at what our competitors are doing. So it's, it's real factual things we've done um, that give us the confidence rather than us going, yeah, we think we're good. We, th- we think we're doing well. We feel good. So we must be. And, and, and that's not the case. It's, um, uh, yeah, we need to back it up with, with actual things we've done. Was there a meet in, in the years you were working with Helen where you weren't successful, it was disappointing, but you learnt the most from it? Is there one in particular you remember? Um, I think that there are different ones where we learnt different things. So um, whether it's certainly in 2014, that whole season, um, for me, I was, I wasn't coping with the volume of training we were doing. So when it came to racing, um, I knew that we could only go as fast as I could go. Um, so that as a team, we were very limited by me. Um, and that that was really hard for me as an individual to accept that I was the weak link. Um, but then it, it then meant every time we went out to race, I knew that Helen was ready to go and go more, and she was just limited by what I could what I could do. Um, so I think I learned over that season just how to manage myself and um, to give give myself confidence in what I was doing and knowing that what I did, Helen would be there ready to back me up all the way and be able to give more. Um, but certainly then, I think in 2015, um, we learned a lot about the way we race rather than less about ourselves as individuals, but more about kind of, we grew confidence in, um, and certainly there was a regatta, I think it was Lucerne in 2015, where I think from the outside, people thought um, the opposition were getting a lot closer to us. But we wanted to see almost how late we could leave it and draw people towards us before kind of going for the line. And um, we had this moment in a, in a race where we kind of we let we let the field come back to us. We'd got a really good start. We'd got ahead. We'd got a lead. Um, we'd kind of broken clear and had had a good, comfortable lead. And then we let the field come back to us. And rather than panicking and going, they've pushed and we should push. We were really confident in our in what we could do and our change in speed. They were like, OK. We know we've done enough and we're just going to let them tire themselves out getting towards us and then know that we can kick away when we need to. And um, that, was, that was quite a key learning point for us. But certainly from the, the media's perspective, I think they all said, oh, goodness, the Kiwi, young Kiwi pair were so close to you and they really challenged you. Um, mm-hmm. And that, for us, we didn't feel that was the case at all. But it was quite interesting what other people's take on what the race was for us. But it certainly gave us confidence. And we had to use stuff we learned then in Rio um, certainly like we we knew that if people came close to us we had the next gear to go and we'd we'd shown that ourselves previously but maybe people hadn't realized that as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. 
So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more from Heather in just a moment, but I want to remind you that today's show is brought to you by Audible. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best to get a free 30-day trial and one free audiobook download. They are one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world, and that's what we love to do on this show. We like to get better and to learn, and you can certainly do that with audiobooks. It's something I personally use. I've listened to various different audiobooks, including Daniel Bryan's Yes, and I really, really enjoyed listening to them. If you like audiobooks, I recommend you try. And if you don't, but you just want to get smarter, why don't you give it a go? Give it a try. All you got to do, audibletrial.com forward slash best. By helping yourself, you're also helping me and the best in the world with Rich Bar because we produce this every Wednesday for you for free. So please help our show. All right, let's get back to the very best in the world. And this week is with Heather Stanning. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Is there anything else that you know now, rowing, that you wish you'd known when you started? Uh, Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) There's a number of things. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, I think when people describe how much training you have to do, I think you just don't really believe it until you're doing it. And uh, certainly having having a break after London and then coming back, when you're in the programme and you're doing it every day, it's routine, it's just what you do. You don't appreciate how fit you are just to be on the programme, let alone completing the programme. So um, coming back, having had a year away, just coming back onto the, the world-class programme, I was like, wow, it's it's insane how much we do and you just take for granted how fit you are just to go day-to-day training mm. but you don't appreciate that because you're tired all the time <laughs> so you're the fittest you you're almost ever be in your life but you're always tired so you never feel the benefit of being so fit until oh. you kind of taper down in the summer to a championships but um it's a funny feeling yeah not realizing how fit you are <laughs> are you ever recommended to, to rest like obviously you, when i read like a, a health and fitness magazine for example it says oh you know after working out quite a lot actually take a few days off actually take a week off to to rest and recover or can you just not afford to do something like that or is it not wise to do it um i think just the way our program's written we have um we do get that rest and recovery, but we continue training. We can't afford not to. And we can't afford to just have weeks off here and there because mm. the skill phase you'll get from not being in the boat regularly and stuff. But um, so our, our program kind of goes in waves and we'll have really heavy weeks to really light weeks to medium weeks. And uh, we do a lot of what we call active recovery. So we're, we're having that recovery time, but we're being active in the way we're doing it. Um, and that, that is really important because your body does need to recover. And when you're doing like a really heavy phase of training, um, 
you know, your body does need that time to recover but we don't we don't stop and do nothing we we carry on just being being active but giving our bodies time to adapt to, to what we've done the previous week or two um so yeah the the program's really carefully managed to put together by the physiologists and the head coaches and stuff to get that kind of um that wave of training effect as you go through the season well, all of that hard work paid off with two Olympic golds, two world championships, two European championships, a lot of rowing World Cups. What was your favourite victory of them all? <laughs> oh, um, I think the, the, there's a few that are kind of really stand out to me. Um, London was amazing because it was the first time we'd been in the middle of the podium hearing the national anthem and it was an Olympic Games and it was at home. Um, Rio, again, was fantastic because it was just the culmination of setting out to do that again and it was really satisfying to be able to do that. Um, I think if, yeah, we'd set off with the ambitions of becoming Olympic champions again and not achieve that, it would be really disappointing four years, but... Um, so yeah, Rio was really exciting in that sense. But um, I think my my 2014 World Championship medal to me means an awful lot just because of the season I had going into that World Championships. Um, but then my 2015 World Championship medal, um, I think that was probably one of the best races me and Helen did or whatever, yeah, have done to date. Mm. Um, and so yeah, that, that so they all kind of different reasons i'm excited by the 2015 one because it was such a good race we did i'm excited by both the olympic ones because they're the olympic medals and the um, 2014 was one that i just yeah i didn't think i'd be able to achieve that that season and, and managed to um well so, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're allowed to have them all because you've won them all so oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um you used different tenses there when you were talking about racing. What, what are the plans now for the for the team? Uh, are we going to see you at, at Tokyo? Um, potentially. Uh, I think, that like I did after 2012, I, I need to focus on my military career for a bit. So I'm, um, yeah, I've definitely said I'll not race next year. And Helen's the same. She feels like she, she just wants a, a year out um, because she went straight from um, London through to to Rio non-stop so um we both said we're going to have it a year away and I think within the, this year we just need to decide whether um Tokyo is something that realistically we we want to and can do um whether it's together or not but um so yeah there's no there's no hurry for us to make a decision so I think we're we're taking that time and making sure it's the right decision well, I'm sure I'm sure we'd all love <laughs> to see you competing again and, and oh, most you. likely winning another medal. Um, let's just very briefly talk about your uh, army career. Uh, just wanted to, maybe you could just tell our listeners what, what exactly you you do with the army, what what your what your title and role is, and perhaps part of what it's played um, in your career as as an athlete what what you learned from the army which you were able to use to become an olympic champion yeah um so i mean i am really fortunate i'm one of the the few athletes in the in team gb and uh, on british world-class programs who who is also um in the military and for, for me the army have supported me throughout my my rowing career um so i'm a major in the royal artillery now having managed to to balance a rowing career with a military career and done all the relevant courses and jobs that have enabled me to keep promoting up the ranks um but 
the army now have something called the army elite sports program and it's it's a recognized career path for for soldiers and officers like myself who who are elite athletes but also want to have a career in the in the army um and so you can you can be an elite athlete and continue your career, um, which is it's it's an amazing opportunity because I think when you start out as an athlete, um, you don't know whether you're going to reach the goals you've got, and um, you have ambitions of making the uh, the national team and going on to world championships or Olympics, but you don't know if you'll ever do that, and you may be unfortunate and get an injury, and therefore your your sporting career is over. But what do you do after that? And I certainly feel that. I know I've always had something to fall back on to. I've been very lucky that my sporting career has gone incredibly well and I've got the results I set out to achieve. But um, if I hadn't, what else would I be doing? And so I think because I've got um, the Army as a, a, a career, a viable career alongside being a, an Olympic athlete, it's it's certainly been really helpful for me. And um, certainly when I come to focus on being a, an athlete, having a bit of perspective away from sports has been really helpful because um, athletes were very selfish it's all about us and what we do uh, making us the best we can be and using everyone around us to make us better um, and actually sometimes stepping back and looking from the outside or maybe getting involved in something different I found really useful certainly returning to to work with the army after London gave me something totally different to focus on and mentally uh, meant that my transition from one Olympics to the next was really healthy I didn't have um, any moment of kind of not sure what I'm doing with my life. What do I do? I've achieved the goals I wanted to do, but I don't know what to do next. Because I was straight away, I was focusing on my next task in hand, which was returning to work with the army, getting a job done there, going on tour to Afghanistan. And then I came back from that and straight away I was focusing on like, what's next? Mm. Where's my end goal? I need to get back into training. I need to make the team. I need to make the boat I want to be in. I've got to train hard. Um, so I've, I've been really lucky to have kind of support from both sides and the army's been been absolutely amazing in ensuring that I can have the time off to train when I need it but also giving me a job to do um where I feel I can add value and I can still do a good job um because certainly working with the soldiers um they're really good at bringing you back to earth and I'm not there to to be a personality I'm there to do a job and get the job done properly and if I don't do the job it's going to affect other people um and so that's been really, really great. Um, so I mean, I, I'm lucky that the part of the army I work in, I get to work with some really intelligent and clever guys. And the soldiers are great at what they do. Mm. As an officer, I'm just there to manage them. Um, so uh, it's it's really great. And I've really enjoyed the jobs I've done. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to kind of getting back stuck into work and seeing what kind of the next stage of my, my army career may be. Mm. It's, it's great being around smarter people. They say you're the, the average of the, the five people around you. So if you're around a lot of <laughs> um, smart people, it means you're, you're up there. So, so it's great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they're all really driven as well, which is really exciting. They're driven for their own goals and the goals of whether it's the unit or the organisation. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to work with people who are ambitious and driven, but not in a selfish way. They're really selfless. Um, and that's, it's, it's, really, it's a really cool environment to be in. Mm. It must be weird for some athletes and sports stars who don't go to that environment when they've had so much focus and determination and dedication and then they move to a job or career where they're with people who, who don't have that similar feeling. It, it must be a bit strange. Yeah. So you're quite fortunate in that sense. Oh, definitely. Really fortunate. And um, I certainly know that there's there's been a bit of a focus on kind of athletes coming to the end of their careers and the transition they go in from being an athlete to 
to being a regular person who has a normal job. Um, and there is a transition phase and it does take people time to, to adapt because your identity for so long has been about you being an athlete and suddenly that's not you anymore. And what do you do? Um, and yeah, people take that for granted a little bit and you really, they think you can just flip from one to the other really quickly and, and you can't, it does take time to adjust. Mm. Well, I know I've taken so much of your time already, so we're going to wrap things up here. Um, Just before we go, perhaps you want to tell our listeners anywhere they can follow you online, if there's a website or anything on social media, or even if you don't have it. Uh, And also if there's any causes you're involved with or any charities, because as as you were talking about, in many ways, it's about giving back. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I'm not someone who's great on social media so uh, <laughs> i have an instagram account heather m stanning um but i mean it, it's really me just sharing my journey um, whether it's been through rowing or, or military just what i get up to but it's probably not that interesting unless you're someone who loves rowing um but um i think yeah for me um i try and support any any military charity um whether it's the um royal british legion or um, Blesma, um, the Army Benevolent Fund, the SAFA, the Soldier Sailors and Air Force families. There's, um, yeah, there's, there's so many kind of military charities out there who are doing a lot, not just for the soldiers themselves, but um, the families as well, which is also important because that's something as an athlete I've learned about is it's not just about me, it's about my support network around me. Mm. And that's exactly the same for military personnel. It's not just them as individuals, it's, it's all their families. Um, and that's really important that we're all looked after as a, a collective. So, um, but yeah, in terms of sport as well, I think um, I've I've been really lucky to go into sports clubs and schools and see youngsters getting involved in stuff. And I've real admiration for the volunteers who who give up a lot of their time to enable youngsters to get involved in sport. So um, it's certainly something I've got a lot of admiration for people who do that. And, and I kind of. I wish I had a bit more time to do something like that myself. Maybe, maybe as I get older, I will. Um, I think, I think with you, with you, Heather, you've done enough for for those <laughs> kids and and everything like that. And not only what you do with the army, but just inspiring people by your success. And I'm sure that there's there's young girls and young children around the world watching you and Helen's great work and great success in Rio, in London, and all the world championships. And they probably look going, I want to be like her one day. So I think you've Aww. done your part. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, but yeah, I mean, if just from what Helen and myself have done, it inspires one or two um, young teenage girls to just stick with sport because they love it. I think that's great. It's not not to not to shy away from something you love and just because it's not the cool thing to do. And don't don't stop doing something you love because um, sport's an amazing thing and you make so many friends and it, yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic. Um, adventure to be on taking part of sport and also it gives you so much confidence in in wider life as well um so yeah i stick with sport <laughs> <laughs> well i've been inspired by you heather and i think well, thank you. a lot of our listeners will as well thank you so much for your time today and thank you for being the best in the world oh thank you richard thank you the best in the world podcast with richard parr Thanks so much to Heather for appearing on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. If you're a rower or enjoy rowing or enjoyed that chat, 
Maybe you also like my conversation with Mahe Drysdale, the New Zealand rowing Olympic champion. Fun chat with him. We've had it about two weeks ago on the podcast, so go back and listen to that. But even if you're not a rower, but you just enjoy learning from the very best, we've got so many different stars and athletes that you will enjoy learning from. They could be footballers, cricketers, Ah, oh, what else we've got? Canoe, Etienne Stott, for example. You might want to listen to him. Gary Hunt, the cliff diver. We've got rugby players, Chester Williams. So many great people you can learn from on the best in the world. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Also give us a rating and review. That's really important to help boost our rankings of the show. And share on social media, on Twitter, Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Richard underscore Parr. We're also on Facebook, Best in the World with Richard Parr. And all of the back catalogue is also on richardparr.net. And get in touch with me if you've got any thoughts about the show, any questions you'd like me to ask our future guests, or any particular guests you would like to have us interview on the program let me know on those social media channels well it's been great to talk to you been great to talk to heather and i will be back again next wednesday on the best in the world the best in the world podcast with richard parr